0: TUC Radio, San Francisco Time of Useful Consciousness Confronting the Global Triple Crisis In September of 2007, the International Forum on Globalization held a teach-in in in Washington, D.C. on climate change, peak oil, and global resource depletion and extinction. Several panel meetings addressed the many false solutions to the climate crisis that may be accelerating the danger rather than alleviating it. Coal, for example, is now promoted as a substitute for oil and promises for the capture of the carbon are made that are not yet possible with current technologies and may never be available on a large scale. Dr. Hermann Ott is head of the Berlin office of the Wuppertal Institute for Climate, Environment, and Energy. He is the co-author of the book, The Kyoto Protocol, International Climate Policy for the 21st Century.
1: It's not that long that I've discovered that climate policy is too narrow to actually cope with the problem of climate change. So what we have to do is to enlarge our notion of what climate policy really is. So I'm really grateful, for example, to Daphne to remind me that the politics of the World Bank and the IMF and the International Development Banks are really important. But we are talking about climate policy now. It is one of the most important issues that we are facing. It is a situation that requires our attention, close attention and action, because If it goes on unfettered, it promises to delete all our advances that we've made in other fields, in social policy, in uh, development policy, and so on. So that's why any agreement on climate policy is one of the cornerstones of any future global regime. A couple of months ago, I was asked by uh, a German foundation to develop... Uh, to write a paper and develop three scenarios one which I called for myself at the beginning the North Korean scenario second one I called big business scenario and the third one I called the paradise scenario North Korea which is officially called business as usual so we are not doing anything the international negotiations fail because the US is not integrating into the regime in the global south the leaders are relentlessly defending their own innocence we haven't done anything it's you so you have to act we have to develop first our people are hungry so there's no agreement in Bali there's no agreement on post 2012 they like big cars they like shining cars, they like trademarks, they all this kind of stuff. So our movement fails, emissions rise. Why do I call it North Korea? Because it will lead to a society, to a global society, with a very, very small elite of affluent people. Affluent in terms of finances, but also affluent in terms of emission rights. And it will lead to 99% of the global population, which is diminished it's not the six or nine billion. It's much less. It will lead to 99% of that population living in absolute poverty and misery. This sounds like science fiction, I know, but it could become reality. On the other side, we've got what I call the eco-fair scenario. Everything works out. The U.S. agrees to somehow be integrated into the regime Developing countries, leaders, understanding. Yeah, of course, I know. You cannot do all at once, but we realize that you are good-willed. So there is an agreement. There is a post-2012 Kyoto II Treaty, or however you will call it. There is um, a rise in, in renewables. We had 18 gigawatts of windmill, uh, wind energy increase in about eight years. This is an amount of electricity that we could not have uh, newly built with conventional power plants in Germany, because it's it's just extremely fast. And 15 countries around the world have copied our feed-in law. The Chinese didn't do it. It was stopped at the minister's level, because the Chinese actually were afraid that it worked too well, and they couldn't control it. So they introduced a quota system. So you can, actually, with small money, and that's the kind of core of that idea, you can, with lots of people investing small amounts of money into renewable energy, you can can achieve more than large corporations um, investing uh, billions of dollars on their own. So it can be done. And under this scenario, it is being done. A movement for a different kind of life is spreading. Still... Under this scenario, I must warn you, we're going to pass the 450 ppm, which is always quoted as being so important, and it is important. But even under these optimistic assumptions we're going to pass, we're going to peak somewhere at 470, 475 parts per million, CO2 equivalents. But then emissions go down. So we're going to see major, major changes in our environment, in the global climate, but still catastrophe might be averted that's the best case and then in the middle, the second scenario which I used to call big business, now I call it structurally conservative, because it sounds better and it's not so offensive to certain parts of our society and that's actually the biggest danger at the moment I don't think that we're not going to do anything. Now, we humans are stupid, but not that stupid. (laughs) So we will at least give the appearance of doing something against climate change. Problem is, we're doing the wrong things at the wrong time. And the biggest danger, I think, of the US entering into the game is exactly that. Because I am confident that the US will be joining in after the next elections but it depends on how. And that's the the real issue. It's not whether we should act or not, but the question is what are we going to do? So under this scenario, there is partly a success of the international negotiations. It comes late. Uh, Negotiations are not finalized in 2009. Agreement does not enter into force in 2013, as it should, but in 2014 or 15, which means the markets lose confidence, the global carbon markets, as they are called. We don't like them, but as Jennifer said before, they are able to generate a lot of money in a very short time. The biofuel hype has just shown it. There's just billions of dollars circling there, and if they see a good investment, they just go down and invest. It's the wrong thing. But if we would be able to divert these kinds of resources into the right, into wind energy, solar energy, then I think it could make a difference. But in this case, carbon markets break down. Even the EU misses its target. You know, it has uh, a target of minus 20% in 2020, a unilateral target, but it uh, fails that target. Uh, There are pockets of Uh, a different kind of life everywhere around the world in China also and in large parts of developing countries but they don't become the prevalent mainstream kind of approach which means emissions rise wrong kind of technologies are being used coal is replacing oil the worst case scenario because it's much more CO2 intensive which means more CO2 is released by burning a certain unit of coal than if you burn oil or gas. There's no structural change, and that characterizes this scenario. And I think that's why many of the business solutions that we're being presented are not only uh, misleading, but they're actually dangerous, because they give us the impression that it could be a solution, but it's not. For example, there's not enough oil, Peak oil is one of our issues here. We've got enough coal, gasification of coal. It was developed by Nazi Germany. It was refined by South Africa under the embargo of oil. So South Africa is now leading in the technology. Coal to liquid, it's possible. And there's enough reserves down there. All with a promise of storage afterwards, clean coal. We just suck the carbon dioxide out of the exhaust and then bury it down there but it doesn't work or it may not work there may be certain geological formations where this actually works but you can't do it on a large scale and that's the promise that these energy companies actually make we are building power plants now that can be retrofitted and you'll be safe because there will be no CO2 emitted and this is not true and is not possible with the present power stations not even in Germany where they are doing this so technologies are coal technologies are nuclear technologies are big biofuels big hydro and no structural change because that is the threat of renewables these companies are not against renewables as such they don't love coal they don't love oil it's just basically what they make the money with So that's why they are defending the use of coal. But renewables are decentralized, and that's the problem, because they haven't got a monopoly. In Germany, there's four large power companies who've got regional monopolies. And, of course, if you've got hundreds of thousands of small investors in renewable energy, their profits are being endangered, and that's why they're against it. So in this scenario... There is no changes to the structures, the basic underlying technological and economic structures of our societies, and that's why it's not successful. So what is important to avoid the second scenario and getting to the third? And I concur with what my previous speaker said, um, that it will depend on a deal being struck between traditional industrialized countries and the new Elite, the new emerging powers China, India, Brazil, South Africa, maybe Mexico, South Korea. We cannot expect them to be more ethically responsible than us. We can expect them to be as responsible as we are, but not more. And so, if you put all the arguments together, there is no way to get around the fact that the affluent North actually has the duty. To support these countries in avoiding a fossil fuel development path. And that means we have to reduce emissions considerably, substantially. Minus 20 is actually not enough. We need minus 30 by 2020 and minus 80, minus 90 in 2050. And we have to make the resources available for them to actually jump, leapfrog the fossil age. This will cost hundreds of billions. Of dollars. If you look at the ozone problem, it took $2 billion, actually, in the course of 10, 12 years uh, that were diverted to developing countries in order to make them uh, able to get rid of ozone-depleting substances. And if you take that times 100, at least, I think you will have the order of magnitude of what is required here. And we have to support developing countries, the weak developing countries, in adapting to climate change, because we are responsible for them. And without doing this, we will not not only be ethically wrong, but we will also lose their support. And we need their support if we want to be successful. So these three ingredients, deep cuts in our countries and uh, substantial um, support for activities to reduce emissions, and to adapt to climate change. I think they are the way forward in the next two or three years, and we need that to get this Kyoto II agreement, post-2012 agreement, and get the uh, society a little bit more on track away from the second scenario and towards the third Ecofair scenario. Thank you.
0: That was Dr. Herman Ott, head of the Berlin office of the Wuppertal Institute for Climate, Environment, and Energy. From the Appalachian Mountains came Mary Ann Hidd. She lives and works at the center of one of the large, unreported ecological tragedies of our time. In surface mines, some the size of New York's Manhattan, whole mountain ranges are blown off, to strip-mind the call. Here's Mary Ann Hitt.
2: Uh, my name is Mary Ann Hitt. I am the Executive Director of Appalachian Voices, and our mission is to bring people together to solve the big environmental problems facing the Central and Southern Appalachian Mountains. And before I start, I want to acknowledge that three people who are my, some of my great heroes in the fight to end mountaintop removal are here, and I would like for them to stand up. And one is Lenny Combe, the campaign director of Appalachian Voices. One is Judy Bonds, who is the winner of the 2003 Goldman Prize. <laughs> um, and the co-director of Coal River Mountain Watch in the coal fields of southern West Virginia. And the third is Alan Johnson, co-founder of Christians for the Mountains in West Virginia. <laughs> Mountaintop removal mining, I'm going to tell you what it is, what the impacts are, and where it's happening, and why those of us who are working on it are very concerned about clean coal. Um, mountaintop removal mining is a form of mining where instead of taking the coal out of the mountain, they take the mountain off the coal. Um, the coal is in the mountain, kind of like layers in a cake. And what they do is they drill holes, they fill them with explosives, and blow the mountains up and shovel everything that's not coal over the side. They take that rock and they bury the streams. And to date, um, somewhere in the neighborhood of 1,000 miles of streams have been buried. A million acres have been destroyed. Over 470 mountains have been blown up in four states. This is done by huge equipment that does the job that was normally done by many hundreds of people. This is a drag line that is over 20 stories high. And once the coal has been removed, they have to remove everything that isn't coal, and they wash it with all these toxic chemicals, and this sludge that they leave behind is stored in earthen dams, hundreds of them all throughout Appalachia, some of which are larger than the Hoover Dam and then the coal is shipped out to provide electricity for all of us half of our electricity in this country comes from coal so there are about eight major impacts of mountaintop removal that i want to run over with you briefly and the first is it's a major environmental justice issue Um, it's happening in one of the poorest regions of the country it's wiping out entire communities and entire culture and that's why I, I bet you twenty bucks at the back of Judy 's shirt says "Save the Endangered hillbillies <laughs> and there 's a reason for that, as coal production has stayed pretty high in West Virginia, the mining jobs have been on a serious decline. again, this is highly automated, and you 'd think with all of this great wealth in West Virginia, the streets of the coal fields would be paved with gold, the mined areas overlaps with the, the poorest areas of the whole entire Appalachian region, where mountaintop removal is happening, the highest rates of poverty. It also overlaps with the highest rates of unemployment, the lowest levels of high school completion, the lowest per capita income, and it's the one part of our region that's actually losing population. So clearly the great wealth that's coming from this is not benefiting the people who live there by and large. Um, it's also a major environmental health issue. And this is Ed Wiley, who's a grandfather and a former coal miner. And it was actually just about one year ago today that he arrived in Washington, D.C. after walking there from Charleston, West Virginia. And he did that walk to raise awareness about the plight of the children in Marsh Fork Elementary School near where Judy lives in southern West Virginia. The school is at the bottom of that sludge dam that you see, and since this picture was taken, most of the mountains around that sludge dam have been blown up. So not only do you have a sludge dam over a school, you have mountains around it that have now been blown up, and so there's more runoff going into that dam. And then you have around the school a lot of coal dust and rock dust that's making the children and the teachers very sick. Clearly, then, this is also a major water clean water issue. Um, This is a spill in the year 2000 in Martin County, Kentucky, when 300 million gallons of sludge broke through into the Big Sandy River, 30 times bigger than the Exxon Valdez oil spill. Very few people heard about it. And this is happening in the headwaters of the drinking water supply of millions of Americans. It's also one of the few global biodiversity hotspots that we have here in North America is right here in this exact same region that the mountaintop removal is happening, and it's especially famous for aquatic biodiversity, crayfish, mussels, um, freshwater fish species, and they are also the most sensitive to all the impacts of mountaintop removal. Um, It's clearly very tied to energy policy, energy use, and climate change. But all that carbon dioxide that's in the air warming our planet started out quite a bit of it in the mountains of central Appalachia. And finally, it's a landscape and a land use issue. And if you care about places in this country, then there are a lot of places with coal under them. And if we're willing to blow up some of the oldest mountains on Earth, hundreds of them, you have to fear for all the other places in this country that have coal underneath them. So to close... Given all of this, given what people like Judy are living with every day, obviously we're concerned about clean coal. Um, And I'm going to go through three concerns that we have. Before I do that, I just want to tell you what is meant by this term, clean coal. Clean coal doesn't have anything to do with the mining process. It has to do with the burning process. And generally what people are talking about is gasification and sequestration. Gasification is the way that you burn it. So normally, you're basically burning pulverized coal dust in a traditional coal-fired power plant. What they do with gasification is they're heating up the coal and adding some oxygen and creating a gas that they burn instead. Then it's easier in that process to separate out the carbon dioxide. Once they've separated out the carbon dioxide, they have to do something with it, and the idea is it will be put underground or under the floor of the ocean. And there are some IGCC plants out there in existence in the world today, a few. They're much more expensive to build than traditional coal-fired power plants. There is no large-scale sequestration going on today, and people say it's 20 to 30 years out at the best, if it's ever gonna happen. So, given the massive impact of coal mining on our region, um, I always tell every audience I speak to that you need to read Big Coal. I think it's one of the most important environmental books that's out there today. I think his point is very concisely put here that this, this is a giant carbon anchor that's slowing down the transition to cleaner forms of energy. And American electric power, they see gasification as a way to keep coal in the mix. Global warming legislation is coming down the pipe. Carbon taxes, carbon caps, something is coming. The coal industry is trying to stay in the game in a carbon constrained world and they see we believe they see gasification as a way to do that. And we also believe it's like, if you've seen the movie, Who Killed the Electric Car? And the way they talk about the hydrogen car is always dangled out there as this possibility at some point in the future that's maybe gonna come to pass. And so in the meantime, we don't really have to do anything because we're working on the hydrogen car. We feel that same way about gasification and sequestration. It's this 20 or 30 years out, we promise coal is going to be totally clean, but for now, guess what's on the drawing boards nationwide? 150 new coal-fired power plants, the vast majority of which will will not be gasification plants and have no hopes of sequestering the carbon dioxide. Our second big concern is it's going to have a disproportionate impact on the mountains that really can just not take any more and our communities that cannot take any more. Any new mines in Appalachia are gonna require more mountaintop removal, deeper mines, increasingly severe environmental consequences, and increasingly unsafe conditions for miners. And if you build a new coal-fired power plant, you can't just get the coal from wherever you want all around the whole world. The railroads are how the coal is shipped, and the railroads mostly can't ship much more coal than they're already shipping, and people aren't building a whole lot more railroads, if you haven't noticed. So if you build a new coal plant in the east, you're locking in a new 50 to 100 year demand for coal right in the back door of the mountaintop removal region and the pressure to get that coal through increasingly destructive, increasingly unsafe mining methods is just gonna go up and up and up and up with every new coal plant that's built, especially in the eastern United States. This is a technical solution to a political problem and the political problem is the unchecked power of the coal industry in our government. And ultimately, their objective is to get as much coal out of the ground as they can and burn it as cheaply as they can for as close to forever as they can. That is their job. And 30 years ago, we tried to solve this political problem, which was at that time strip mining, with the passage of the Surface Mining Act. And this is what we have in Appalachia 30 years later. Insane levels of strip mining. This is a picture of the harsh reality of what happens when the coal industry does their business according to our technical fixes. So even if this region and even if mountaintop removal are not a priority for you, I would argue, it's my closing point, that mountaintop removal is one of the most powerful wedges that we have in challenging the unchecked power of the coal industry because people understand that this is not right. Just like the Exxon Valdez shined a light on the unchecked power of big oil, mountaintop removal shines a light on the unchecked power of big coal, and it's not something that many people are very aware of. People look out their window, and they've heard about global warming, but everything is really fine. It doesn't seem like an immediate crisis in their life. They understand that this is not fine, that this is not okay, and we should not underestimate the public outrage that this kind of mining can generate, and the public support for energy reform that it can generate, and the public support for finally reining in big coal. So thank you very, very much.
0: That was Mary Ann Hitt, Executive Director of Appalachian Voices, Go to their website at www.appvoices.org and to a sister website called ilovemountains.org. There you can see aerial photos of the Appalachian mines and photos of the forests, streams, and mountains before they were demolished. Mary Ann Hitt and Dr. Herman Ott were recorded at the Confronting the Global Triple Crisis Teach-In, organized by the International Forum on Globalization in Washington, D.C. In September of 2007, these and other panel talks of the three-day Teach-In are posted on the IFG website at ifg.org. A link to the IFG is on TUC Radio's website, www.tucradio.org. The Teach-In was recorded by Conference Recording Services in Berkeley, California. You can also find a free download or CD of the talks by Mary Ann Hitt and Dr. Herman Ott on TUC Radio's website TUCradio.org You can place your order on the website or call toll-free anytime at 877-TUC-TAPE The toll-free phone number 877-TUC-TAPE translates into one 877 Two, eight, two, seven, three. TUC Radio is free to all radio stations. Your order or your donation are the only support and are essential in keeping TUC Radio on the air. My name is Maria Gelardon. Thank you for listening. Give us a call.